Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder is a rare, demyelinating autoimmune disease that affects the spinal cord and optic nerves. Several treatments are available, but recognizing the disorder can be challenging for clinicians due to its overlapping clinical presentation with multiple sclerosis. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the diagnosis and management of neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. And joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Justin Abadamarco. Dr. Abadamarco is a neurologist in the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis within Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Justin, welcome to Neuropathways. Glenn, thanks for having me. So, Justin, I know you, but our audience doesn't know you so well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you made your way to Cleveland, and what you do in your daily practice. Yeah, kind of meandered my way here. Moved around a little bit when I was younger. Lived in the West Coast, East Coast, Midwest. Did training in Penn State and the University of South Florida. I truly fell in love with the program that I was interviewing here and met my wife. And so now Cleveland, Ohio is home. But in all honesty... The program here, right, is tremendous. Our neuroimmunology program, our colleagues to be able to collaborate, it's a place I call home now. Well, we're glad to have you, and we're glad that you're interested in looking after this disorder. So we're going to discuss specifically neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. You know, when I trained, this thing did not exist. We called it Divick's disease Mm -hmm. uh, as it went through. But as I mentioned in the introduction, shares a lot of features with multiple sclerosis, and in fact, was really, when I trained, it was thought to be a variant of multiple sclerosis. Can you briefly give us some background on neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder and maybe why they call it a spectrum disorder and how our understanding has evolved over time? Yeah, no, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite things to talk about because I really think it gives us this like past, present, future of neurology. It kind of encompasses it all in one disease. So yeah, the disease was kind of previously known as Devic's disease. So it was a French scientist who kind of described this association of optic nerve involvement and spinal cord involvement and was putting together the pathophysiology may be the same. Again, it was in the 1800s, kind of incredible, because those were kind of disparate systems. And uh, for him to link those two together is pretty incredible. But for many years, right, this was thought to be maybe a variant of MS. It was also called lupus myelitis because many of these patients would have concomitant antibodies, Sjogren's myelitis, so it's gone by many, many names. It wasn't until 2004 when we discovered the aquaporin-4 antibody or AQP4 antibody just revolutionized the field. So now we have a biomarker for the disease that explains the pathogenesis. And since that discovery in 2004, we now have three, possibly four FDA-approved treatment options uh, coming for this, uh, available to patients to kind of personalize our approach just like an incredible kind of bench to bedside and has a a really interesting and rich history um, to kind of go through. So is there a prototypical phenotype? Definitely. With this patient population and what is it? Yeah. So I think we think of like three main kind of clinical syndromes. So one, optic neuritis. And like, how do we differentiate that from like the typical optic neuritis we see from MS patients? So usually seeing severe vision loss in one or both eyes. So 20 over 200 to even no light perception. So very severe. When we're looking at MRI, sometimes we can see optic chiasm involvement. 
which is very, very unusual uh, in MS. So bilateral optic nerve involvement, chiasm involvement, severe kind of vision loss that doesn't respond well to steroids and leaves people with permanent vision loss. All kind of characteristics that are unusual in MS. So severe optic neuritis in one or both eyes. The next is transverse myelitis is what we commonly think of. And we usually characterize that as a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, so greater than three vertebral lengths, usually involving the center of the cord, causing severe disability. I think it's important to note, though, that 15, maybe even 20% of the spinal cord lesions in AQP4-positive NMOSD can be short segments. So I don't think it has to always be longitudinally extensive, mm-hmm. but something that definitely is characteristic and unusual, again, in MS or other demyelinating diseases. And in a third syndrome, which is very unique to AQP4 disease, would be areopostrema syndrome. So that's going to cause this intractable nausea, vomiting, or hiccups. And I think when you're trying to tease that out in clinic, right, that's a hard thing to ask because everyone's experienced that. But when I talk to residents and fellows, we're talking about symptoms that are lasting hours to days, usually requiring some acute care kind of management, going to an urgent care center, hospital, things like that to require hydration or IV medication treatment. So those are like the three main clinical syndromes that we see. And it kind of helps to think about them when we contrast them in terms of like MS attacks. There are other attacks that we can see, but they're much less common. Mm -hmm. And if we look at males versus females, just like MS, what do we see in this disorder? Who's affected more? In MS, we typically see like a three to one ratio, two and a half to three female to male predominance. Here, that uh, relationship is exaggerated. It's almost a 10 to one. So this disease is going to be seen in the vast majority of female patients. Another maybe characteristic will be non-white individuals, another kind of distinct feature from MS. So we know that this disease is going to be much more common in patients who are non-white in areas of the world where MS is less common, Asia, Africa, the Caribbean um, areas. Warm places. Towards the equator. (laughs) Towards the equator. Um, And we don't see that kind of same relationship where MS usually gets more common away from the equator. Right. That same kind of relationship does not exist here. And what about age? Who's affected? Anyone, right? We think of reproductive age females for autoimmune diseases. I think average age is around 39 to 40 years old, but truly can span the age spectrum. So it can involve pediatrics, less common, but it can also involve the elderly. So we've had patients diagnosed in their 60s, 70s. So something we really have to kind of keep on the differential at all age groups, which can be challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw a patient when I was on the consult service several years ago that got referred into the neurosurgery service. And we were asked to see the patient. They were, uh, I believe, in their 60s. And they had long segment problem in the neck. And there was just something that was very atypical about it. And we sent off the antibodies and they had the positive antibodies. They were, the neurosurgery was going to do a surgical biopsy on this patient. And uh, fortunately, we uh, were able to abort that. Uh, as it went forward, because it just, as you mentioned, some of the features, it just seemed a bit atypical. You know, you got just have to have the radar has to be up on these things, right? And especially when you get out of the typical age range, it's easy just to go, oh, it's not that. 100%. But we always have to think about it. So it's it's always good to review these things. Um, when did they change? You know, we called it NMO for a period of time, and then they added the spectrum disorder. How long ago was that? I, I can't even tell you, but yeah. do you know? It's come through a couple iterations, right? And the field is evolving so fast because now we have MOG. Or... Yeah, I was going to ask you about MOG. So where does MOG fit into this? Um... 
it's bewildering to me. It feels like that. Just <laughs> throwing antibodies, right? <laughs> yeah. And we just love our acronyms, right? Patients yeah. are just like, what, what's going on? I tell them, we just have these MS cousin diseases. We're going to figure it out, though. Yeah. Now, the field has gone through many iterations, and I think we'll be going through more. I think MOGAD, when the 2015 diagnostic criteria came out, and that's the one we're kind of quoting here, mm -hmm. right? MOGAD was not as prominent. We didn't have commercial lab testing then. And so I think we knew that HGP4 and MOSC, we had a good understanding of that, but we knew there were patients who were not positive, had similar symptoms. And so we had diagnostic criteria available to help diagnose those patients. So we can talk about that because that's a challenging group of patients, these antibody or seronegative patients. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we'll have further kind of clarifications of how this diagnostic criteria mm -hmm. look like in the future. Um, we just had MOGAD diagnostic criteria. So I think we're gonna start being a little bit more biomarker specific mm -hmm. when making these diagnoses because we now know the pathophysiology, the treatment's totally different. But that spectrum disorder just kind of encompasses that they don't always have to have the antibody, especially when this criteria was being developed and this can span multiple kind of parts mm -hmm. of the nervous system. So from a diagnostic criteria, obviously how the patient presents those types of things, you get your MRI, you looked at the features you suggest, you see stuff coming to the chiasm, is it bilateral, which is very atypical in multiple sclerosis. You look at the spine, are there at least three segments? Do you need to look at the thoracic and lumbar spine or we don't see problems there or it should be done? You should do the whole axis. Yeah, I think it depends on the clinical presentation, right? But we commonly get thoracic imaging, mm -hmm. right? Because um, those lesions can definitely span. These patients are usually symptomatic because a longitudinal extensive lesion is going to produce some type of symptoms. Lumbar imaging is really interesting. So we don't see conus or nerve root involvement as often. But uh, in MOGAT, we're starting to see that a little bit more often, mm. sarcoidosis, which those things are sometimes on a differential. So maybe we should be getting it. Sometimes. If, if you're um, there, right. And if that clinical suspicion, especially if you see mm -hmm. this patient de novo, it's not easy to tell. Mm -hmm. And so those are the times when we'll get um, whole neuroaccess, right? Brain to lumbar. Um, trying to allow the clinical exam to help us, but there are times, and again, if you're seeing conus or nerve root, we need to think of other diseases like MOGAD, neurosarcoid, or other kind of neuroinflammatory diseases. So waiting for an antibody to come back, I understand, is slightly longer than waiting for your coffee at Starbucks. Just a tad. Just a tad. How long does it take? I mean, do you have time to wait, or do you have to have high clinical suspicion you should initiate treatment? I've always preached the same thing when we look at our encephalitis yep. patients and we're worried if they had an autoimmune encephalitis. By the time antibodies come back, you know, time is brain and antibodies are injuring brains. So if your clinical suspicion is high, me, I'm a big fan of if the risk is low of hurting them, let's initiate the treatment. Sounds like you're in the same camp. 100%. And this is so much different than MS that time is brain here, mm -hmm. right? The MS patients are going to recover really, even if you're delayed treatment, but we know that delay in treatment will absolutely cause worse outcomes for mm -hmm. these patients. And we're talking about vision, right? Permanent blindness, mm -hmm. inability to ambulate, um, you know, significant disability that makes a huge impact in people's lives. So I, I think absolutely looking and making a clinical diagnosis based on your clinical history, exam, MRI, and CSF, Usually, that gives you enough of a mm -hmm. gestalt to kind of start. you get CSF on most patients? I think almost all patients. Because okay. the differential is broad, and yeah. that can look a little different than MS. So MS, we almost never see patients with more than 50 cells. Usually, it's, it could be normal 10, 20 cells. Mm -hmm. In AQP4 and MOSD, it's not uncommon to see a highly inflammatory tap. Mm -hmm. 
I will say one caveat, if you have optic neuritis as an isolated feature, sometimes it's less inflammatory. And then less than 20% of these patients will have oligoclonal bands or unique oligoclonal bands. Okay. So some helpful kind of features before we even send that antibody off. Mm-hmm. And I guess, as you've mentioned, if they have an underlying antibody disorder, they have lupus, they have myasthenia, they have one of these types of things, and they develop one of these cardinal features, pretty cut and dry, right? AQP4 disease should be like at the top of our list. Yeah. And maybe we could talk about antibody testing, as I think that's a challenge um, on like how we approach that. Mm-hmm. This All send out. It needs to be, because this testing needs to be done in a specialized center that does it a lot. And mm-hmm. we try to harp on this with the uh, residents and fellows. It has to be a cell-based assay. Okay. There's good evidence to show that an ELISA-based assay is neither a sensitive nor specific. And you know, a misdiagnosis in either direction has huge implications for these patients. So sending it out before we treat, so before we give them steroids or plasma exchange is vital. And we commonly send out at this point the AQP4 antibody and the MOGAD um, antibody at the same time, because they're hard to differentiate at that and first And it's visit. all in blood or CSF can be both or just should be blood? Both of these tests are in blood. The okay. residents hate, right? Because each antibody has different sensitivity and specificity, but especially for AQP4 disease, we have good evidence that we only need to test blood. There's limited uh, utility. You ever see both positive? We act, we think, yeah, because we think that the antibodies are produced peripherally and then they're going to um, enter into the CSF, mm-hmm. but it adds no extra kind of diagnostic okay. value. So just serum, especially for the AQP4 test, we have good evidence for that on a cell-based assay before treatment is really, really important. Okay. And your turnover time, do you know? You know, it depends, um, but we're talking, you know, a week to 10 days, okay. which is a long time. Okay. And any other specific tests that you should do? Obviously, it's going to depend on the clinical presentation, but are there any standard tests you would do otherwise that need to be done or not really? You know, especially in the acute setting, I think these are kind of standard tests. Uh OCT, um, optical coherence uh, imaging, has been used more often. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that has some subtle clues to us, but again, that's hard to get in the inpatient setting when these patients come in really sick. Mm -hmm. And the other things in the differential diagnosis with these besides MS and you said you mentioned uh, sarcoid and these types of things. Anything else? You know, if we have eye involvement, right, that has its own differential and we're working with our ophthalmology colleagues to kind of work through those pieces. But, I mean, we're dealing with mainly inflammatory diseases there, NMOSD, MOGAD, and MS, mm-hmm. rare infectious kind of complications that we can see in those regions. And genetic diseases can be a little challenging. I think the spinal cord involvement, like the differential for myelitis is long. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, we've had patients, I have one right now with seronegative or antibody negative NMOST that we're working up now for a, um, a potential spinal cord tumor. Keeping that differential broad and being mm-hmm. thoughtful about some of these patients because it can be challenging, but neurosarcoidosis can definitely cause a longitudinally extensive myelitis. Do they get a big syrinx that goes down further or not typically? In neurosarcoid? No, in the NMO. It definitely involves the central cord um, mm-hmm. more than like those peripheral short segment lesions that we think of MS. I don't, as commonly see a syrinx associated with it, but that's not uncommon mm-hmm. um, in the population. And the, you've mentioned a couple of times if they're aquaporin positive or negative, and I guess always a hard question to answer, but what percent are truly positive? What percent are truly negative as best as we can yeah. know? This has definitely evolved over time, right? And most of what we talked about here today is like AQP4 positive and MOSD, because that antibody negative group 
there are so many question marks still left there. Right in 2015, we didn't have MOGAD testing. Now we know about 20 to 30% of that population that was antibody negative, mm-hmm. MOGAD. So another couple of years, we'll, we'll have another, another antibody. We'll throw one Beautiful. more out there. One more. I really do think that we have so far to go in that group of mm-hmm. diseases. But I think there have been a few key themes that have emerged over the last couple of years in this group. With the FDA-approved medications in those clinical trials, we consistently saw that if they were antibody negative, they didn't respond well to medications, which is a, a theme or a hint to me that that pathophysiology we don't have well described. I think it's a mixture of different ideas. And so my piece of advice there, yes, I use that diagnosis, but that diagnosis keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. I'm worried that I've missed something. When those patients come back, I'm trying to think through again that patient I described. Mm-hmm. We went back, talked to our neurosurgery colleagues, said, we miss something? Are we doing an angiogram to look for a fistula, some like other rare disease that can affect that? So I think really looking at that group mm-hmm. and constantly kind of reevaluating, and I think in time we'll have other diagnostics to help us there. But I, I mean it when I say truly, it keeps me up at night when I make that diagnosis. I feel like I've missed something. So someone has sort of classic presentation, what's the likelihood their antibody is positive? The antibody is really good in a cell-based assay, sensitive and specific. It's okay. very hard to write this off. This is not okay. like GAD65 or um, even MOGAD to some degree, which requires a little bit more pre kind of probability testing in my mind. Okay. This is a sensitive specific assay. It's very hard to write off. Okay. So they come in, classic syndrome, send off the antibodies, do the LP. What's your first treatment? We here use a lot of IV methylpred, so that 1,000 milligrams. How many days? Five days. Okay. And then we are going right to Plex, okay. so that combination approach. I think there's some- And you ev- like Plex better than IVIG? I think the combination, we really have to like hit these guys hard, try to prevent that disability, and we know that time is brain here. So the faster we get those therapies initiated, the better they're doing long-term. And so I try to tell the residents that the clinical suspicion's high, if it doesn't feel or look like MS, mm-hmm. it's okay to add that plasma exchange while we're unsure. And how many exchanges you do? You know, typically five. Um, it's somewhat historical, right, in what we've right. always done, um, over about seven to 10 days. Mm-hmm. I also want to acknowledge that we're very lucky here. That's not difficult for us to do. We have those resources and expertise. Yeah, I'll echo that. It's been my whole career here, uh, having ability to do Plex has been amazing. No, we, we have a tremendous team here. So that's not a difficult decision for us. But I think this is another reason if you're at a hospital where it's maybe not as doable, calling and asking for help when this kind of comes up, I think is absolutely appropriate. How long will you delay to give them IVIG if they don't improve on Plex? There is good evidence that IVIG is not very effective here. Okay. So I don't use very much IVIG. IVIG now, though, has some evidence in MOGAT. And so now this world becomes much more complicated. And I think Again, over these coming years, we're going to see there are clinical trials going on in MOGAD to help us manage that disease better, but it's confusing. So you mentioned that there's some new drugs. Maybe this is a good time to mention it. They have difficult names. I can't pronounce them. So tell me about the the drugs. Probably very exciting for you. This truly, like to have FDA-approved options to talk to patients and personalize it. I mean, to go from, again, we were calling this disease in 2003, MS. Mm-hmm. 2004, we have a biomarker. And then by 2018, 2019, we have three FDA-approved options. It's just an incredible success story and ones that target the underlying pathophysiology of the disease. Like I was talking about that past, present, future of neurology. Mm-hmm. I think it's how these medications have come about and how they target the exact pathophysiology. It's just incredible. 
We can talk about maybe the three meds in a little more detail. Yeah, but before that, you guys over at the Mellon Center, you probably like giving the rituximab first. You know, I think our our pattern has shifted a little bit, but I do. Uh-huh. We can talk about rituximab first because it's tried and true, and I think we're comfortable with it in our immunology. There is good retrospective data, and one of um, there was actually a prospective study. It's not done. an FDA approved drug for this disorder, right? I think we need to. And say not that. an FDA approved uh, option, but good retrospective evidence. And right. there was a randomized clinical trial in Japan, small. I think a total of about forty patients, again, but showing good efficacy there, mm-hmm. and so. It's one of the most common questions that we get, is rituximab a reasonable option? And I do think it is, but they now have some other options at least think about. Mm -hmm. And I tell this to the residents that these medications that we're talking about are being used in other diseases. So we are going to have to become comfortable with them. They're gonna be used in other disease states. So let's go through these three drugs. Yeah, so we have three, possibly four. Um, One is probably about to come on, but maybe the first one, since we just talked about rituximab, is anebolizumab. So this is an anti-CD19 monoclonal and has many similarities to rituximab. So the CD19 molecule hits a larger kind of plethora of B cells. So we're hitting the plasma blast or the antibody producing cells. So we think that may offer some additional benefit. Maybe have a little bit faster onset too in helping these patients in the acute setting because we think those antibodies are pathogenic. And these are all administered the same way? Um, or is there a difference? Anabolizumab is infused. So it's an infusion-based okay. therapy. Same kind of schedule is rituximab. So okay. that first cycle requires the dose to be split. And then it's mm. once every six months. So really okay. easy, convenient. And the side effect profile, similar, right? It's infusion right. reactions, uh, infections, because we're dealing with uh, these B cells. But those are the main kind of elements there. And I think people are comfortable with this idea of a B cell yes. and this kind of infusion schedule. So right. yeah, that kind of caps off in nebulizumab, I think, in my mind. The next kind of medication, eculizumab, and there's a medication that's likely related to rabulizumab. So these are complement inhibitors. Eculizumab is FDA approved. Rabulizumab is under investigation. It's, uh, they're actually in talks with the FDA right now. So this is a complement inhibitor. We know that when the antibody enters into the brain, it stimulates the complement system. It's a complement-mediated disorder. And so this is kind of stopping that right at that level. And it's been proven to also be very effective. The trouble with this, so the side effect profile, is that when we mess with the complement system, we have uh, this risk of infections with encapsulated bugs. So Neisseria meningitidis is like the big example, but strep pneumonia, um, other examples here. And so that is something that we have to kind of monitor. We need to get these patients vaccinated with the meningitis vaccine before, or you can start antibiotics. It's a frequent infusion. So eculizumab is every two week infusion. So it's a, you know, we have to weigh that with patients. Rabulizumab, is going to be a every two-month infusion, but a similar kind of mechanism. And it's used in other disease states, but another way to kind of attack this disease in a pathophysiology kind of minded way. So who's the guy out there uh, combining these therapies? Because they have different mechanisms of action. So if one's good, is are, are two better? You know, I think I was just having this conversation. Our rheumatology colleagues, right? They like to hit patients with like four medications all at once. I think in our neuroimmunology space, especially now that we have like clinical evidence, we can usually go forward with monotherapy. Like we should be able to find one medication that works. Um, And so we're not usually doing that besides that bridge that we'll use with a little bit of prednisone initially. We have one more medication to talk about. Satralizumab is an injectable. So our first two are infusion-based. Satralizumab is an IL-6 inhibitor. And it's really nice to offer a different mechanism for these patients. So self-injection. So for patients who... Sub-Q. Mm-hmm. 
really easy, convenient. It's once a month, so not terribly often. Side effect profile, again, infections, um, upper respiratory infections. And we see some changes in the CBC and LFTs that we have to monitor, but most patients tolerate these medications really well. Mm-hmm. And all of them have been proven very effective. They're very hard to compare. Like if you were asking me which one's the better one, I think it needs to be a personalized choice that works with the patient and then their comorbidities. Mm-hmm. But all of them can be used in monotherapy and change the game. And you start these drugs or hope to start these drugs how soon after the Plex? Yesterday. Okay. You know, truly, you want to start them as soon as you can. Can you give them in-house? We have started to do that. Okay. But I think when we're talking about it at a patient level, we're advocating for their best outcomes. Right. And there is emerging evidence that acute treatment, especially in the hospital, offers better long-term outcomes. Well, you know, I'm personally always okay if you're advocating for a patient's right. uh, health. That's how I feel. So I think, and we're going to start seeing more data, I think, on this. Okay. So bad disease, drugs available now, treat soon. Stabilization rates are what? Really good. If you have patients on therapy, these patients can do well. Mm-hmm. I think they're left sometimes with significant disability related to even just the first attack. But I think supportive care, symptomatic care, like this requires a team. Mm-hmm. Maybe one other nuance from MS I think we're starting to see patients come off medications in multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we can do that for yeah, this Yeah, that's disease. what I was going to ask you. Is this a lifetime at this point? Truly. And like we really mean lifelong. You know, I think MS, we're starting 55, 65. There's discussions to stopping. Mm-hmm. For this disease, mm-hmm. we know that stability for five, even 10 years does not pretend to a better prognosis. They can still have disabling attacks. So they really require a lifelong treatment, which is why being thoughtful when that initial diagnosis, sending the right test off in the beginning, huge implications for these patients. Okay. Can we predict who's going to relapse? Everyone. We know that this is a relapsing disease. So do we change therapy at relapse? Do we have to? If so if we're on one of these treatments and it's been effectively given, I, yeah, I think we would definitely have to think okay. about that. So we just go to one of the other three, maybe four, or rituximab? Mm-hmm. And then uh, final takeaways for our audience or things we haven't discussed you think are important? I think reaching out for help. Like there's always a friendly autoimmune neuroimmunologist. Like they don't have to do this alone. These are complicated. Which sample do we send? How, which best antibody tests are we using? Right? This world is becoming more and more subspecialized. But don't do it alone. We're here because it's complicated. Well, Justin, I very much enjoyed our conversation today. As always, I learn new things. And uh, from having a mother that had MS, and I know it's different than what we're talking about now, but you know, just looking at the field that you guys do in neuroimmunology, the changes over the, my 30-year-plus career, it's astounding. Mm. You know, we could give patients steroids, and that was it. And you know, now it's sort of, how do you make the decision of which of these... Uh, dozen medications you give. It's a good problem to have. So I'm, I'm very excited about what you guys are doing uh, and the strides that you're making. I appreciate your efforts and thanks for all you do and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. 
That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLE Clinic MD, all one word. And thank you for listening.